Welcome to Our Hen House. This is Marianne Sullivan. And this is Jasmine Singer. Thank you so much for joining us this week. I know you're going to be glad you did. Jasmine's going to be speaking with Nicole Rawling of the Material Innovation Initiative. This is, I don't know whether you've heard of this yet, but it's very, very cool. It's a not-for-profit that is kind of leading the charge to stop making stuff out of animals like leather and, well, material. That's what that's what they're talking about. And instead make them out of plants. Obviously, if we're going to take animals out of the food system and stop slaughtering them by the gazillions, we have to make substitutes for the uh, quote-unquote byproducts of the slaughter industry, which are actually a hugely important part of their income stream. And fortunately, it appears that you can make leather and all the rest without killing animals. In fact, from everything, I hear, it seems like there's a new story coming out every day about some new thing that somebody's making leather out of. So, so I think we're covered on the leather front. It's very exciting. We talk about a lot uh, that I didn't know about about what innovations are underway and the hopes for the future. And this week on the bonus segment, we'll be hearing more of my conversation with Nicole. And as always, if you're a Flock member, you'll get a link to the bonus segment in your email on the Tuesday after this podcast episode goes up, or you can always find it on the Flock Facebook group. And if you're not a member of the Flock, you could afford it, then join us for $10 a month at ourhenhouse.org slash donate or for $100 a year. And this is actually a wonderful time to become a flock member and a donor because between now and the end of the year, your donations are being tripled. Not doubled, but tripled thanks to our Barnyard Benefactors and an added boost from an anonymous donor. So every single dollar that comes into our henhouse between now and December 31st counts as three. So if you go to ourhenhouse.org slash donate, then you will be able to make a donation and join the flock for $10 a month or $100 a year. And remember, Giving Tuesday is on 12-1, so that's this week. And if you're feeling generous, then we hope you will consider keeping vegan indie media alive and supporting our efforts to change the world for animals. Also, during the pandemic, which is getting worse and worse and then worse and worse, God help us people, be careful out there. We are doing our Flock Friday Zoom calls at 4 p.m. Eastern Time. Sometimes we have guests. Last week, we had these two amazing nurse, vegan nurses talking about COVID and, and veganism and everything. It was really great. Sometimes we just have a chat. So if you're a member of the Flock, check out the Flock Facebook group for updates or write to us at info at ourhenhouse.org. Mm, yeah, I hope to see you there. It's super special. I've also been You hope to see me there? To- I'm always there. You are. And I hope to see our listeners. I like to switch the you from you to you. Uh, but I'm also offering video thank individualized video thank yous to anyone who becomes a flock member because I do want to get to know you. And we are greatly privileged to get to know so many of our worldwide listeners through these Flock Fridays. So we'll get the ball rolling with my video and then you'll join us for a Flock Friday and then the rest will be uh, history. We'll change the world for animals together. So speaking of all of the many, many things that our hen house is offering, this past week we kept our our team very, very busy. Shout out to uh, our editor, Eric, our director of operations, Jen, and our wonderful researcher, uh, Jocelyn, because we had three episodes go off. We had the regular Our Hen House podcast, we had Sanctuary, which is our radio play. I hope you have tuned into that. That came out last this past Tuesday. And 
we had an animal law podcast go up. So we kept our team very, very busy. And tell me about the animal law podcast this week. Yeah, it was great. My guest was Rebecca Carey of the Humane Society of the United States, and she joined us to talk about a hugely important case uh, in, in federal appeals court in California, which upheld Prop 12 in California. Probably a lot of you are familiar with what that is, but but we particularly spoke about the part of uh, the proposition that requires animal products from other states that are sold in California to comply with Prop 12's restrictions regarding gestation crates and veal crates and 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 other things. And and it was a great conversation. It's a hugely, hugely important issue. So, it you know, the, the Animal Law Podcast is for lawyers, law students, and, and for lots of people who are interested in, in animals and, and what the legal system is doing for them and against them. So think about tuning in. Yes, definitely do. So before we get to our interview this week, there were a few things that I wanted to chat about. Uh, I was telling you that I was in the shower. I, I listened to the, I have a shower radio and I have it just tuned into my favorite station. I, I highly recommend, by the way, that people turn their bathrooms into like a little mini spa. I have put in my shower radio and I have put in some like calming blue lights and like a, this, this sort of string light that all of the little light bulbs are little gems. You it's, love string lights. I do. I love string lights, but I love and to also just, just for Christmas. I have gotten uh, these shower bombs, which are really cool. So I do recommend shower bombs, too. They're just like this little puff of like, you know, fragrant, like yumminess. And they there you can get they help you breathe better. Some of them and they just turn your spa, your shower into a spa. So as I was in my spa, <laughs> I was listening to the shower radio. Can I interrupt for a second sure. before you get to your shower radio story? Yeah. Because, you know, I, I have had my house on the market and as a result, I've put stuff away. And, you know, like what I usually do is just stick it somewhere and then I have no idea where it is. So I have no idea where anything is. But my shower it, there's a little place for a shampoo bottle and soap and conditioner, and that is it. Mm. And believe me, it to, for me that is the definition of a spa. That's your funny. Shower, your your bathroom is like I'm unbelievably crowded with. Stuff. I am the opposite. <laughs> I have nothing. There's nothing on the counter. There's n like nothing. It's so lovely. No, all of my stuff is very organized, but especially because I I'm at you know I'm the VP uh, over at, at Kinder Beauty and. So I also get all of these like products. Like my whole entire bathroom is full of everything. I know it makes me nervous to go uh, in there. <laughs> just all, all that stuff. All that stuff. No, I get that. I, you, well, not only that, but I share it with my cat. So <laughs> the. <laughs> all right, now it's now it's getting odd. <laughs> it's sectioned off, like so the dogs can't get in, but the cat can. Like. The dogs are little, so they can't jump high. So there's like a, you know, piece of plywood. So you have to step over it to get in. The cat jumps over it. She could eat her food. She could use the litter box. How does she feel about personal care products? She's like all about them. Same as me. We both like, we want everything. Basically, we want it all. Um, there's this Broadway show tune. I don't remember what it's from. I should look it up. But the main part of it is, I want it all. Um, <laughs> that's like no, my. I don't know that. Yeah, that's like my everything, my my anthem. Anyhow, I was in the shower, <laughs> and this story came on about uh, this former Amazon engineer who had worked on Alexa, 
and has a new project, which is an app that can translate your cat's meow. Speaking of my, uh, my cat, who I share a bathroom with, and and this person's name is Javier Sanchez. And, and this is not just a joke thing, right? It doesn't like just no, tell you that your joke. cat is saying some funny thing. This is no, real. He's working with all of these like animal behaviorists and then like all of these tech people over at this company called Ekvelon. And he has developed this thing called Meow Talk. And basically uh, it assesses what your cat's meow is um, through like listening. And it tells you what your cat is saying. Like, I'm hungry or I'm, ha- I'm happy or I- I'm in pain. And it's all built into the app. So all cats have the same. I, I guess it would make sense that they they all have the same type of meow for different purposes yeah i mean who knows like uh, this is all anthropomorphism and some animal research well i'm not sure it is that might be absolutely true and it did say that it allows you to fine-tune it if you know that your cat's meow cat's meow at this moment is is meaning uh give me that toy as opposed to give me a biscuit or what oh i guess yeah, I, I've had a dog for too long. Um, <laughs> My cat never asked me to give her a biscuit. <laughs> give me some catnip. You can fine tune it so that if, if your cat speaks a somewhat different language, though they insist this is not a language, but if your cat speaks a different one, you can you can kind of adjust it to personal. But apparently, they do all have pretty similar variations for for various needs or demands or uh, desires. And one of the goals is for the, uh, if this gets smart enough for you to be able to put like a collar on your cat. And then when the cat meows, it like um, immediately says, like the cat will go meow. And then like a, a, a voice will say, I'm hungry, like in, in English or whatever your language is. It's, <laughs> okay, all right, this, I, I wanted to discuss it with you briefly because even though I find it very funny in a way, I also like, I think it's weird. And I think it's like, why do we have to, why do we have to ne- get get down to like what this means in English? Like we're, we're not changing what we're saying to like be cat language, you know? <laughs> I don't know. I can see both an animal forward perspective of this that like it's good to be able to understand what your cat is saying so that you can fulfill it's, that request it's funny or though, demand Marianne. or whatever it is. On the but other there's hand, there's just something weird about, about it. it. Like the opposite way. Like it's funny to think that like I would wear a collar and I would say to Stella, like, um, do you do you want do you want me to get you breakfast right now? And she would hear meow, 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 meow. <laughs> like it's funny. But it What uh, I think is even funnier is if they made one for us that we would use with other humans. And while we were trying to say, oh, sure, no problem. I'd be happy to do that for you. What they would hear is, fuck you. <laughs> do your own. Get your own coffee, you asshole. <laughs> well, actually, wait, like put that through a vegan, a vegan sphere or something. And like they would, it's even funnier too to me. Like they, you would say, um, no, I mean, if you want to get the hamburger, get the hamburger. And then they would hear, like, of course, you're taking part in an oppressive system because you apparently have no morals or values and you're going to die in early <laughs> that, That's such a great idea. But, that's such a great idea. Then you don't have to, like, you don't have to get yourself to do it. Like, it, it just happens but, um, Yes. Okay. And I was just so judgmental, but whatever. That was my, uh, that was my little app truth teller. Judgmental is where we live and there's no use being ashamed of it. But I was thinking about, like, the fact that, okay, you're going to spend all this money making sure we understand what our cats are saying. But, like, you know, 
what about all of the pigs and the chickens and the cows and the factory farms? Like, we could take a dark turn here. And, like, yeah. what if we got them the goddamn collars and they were, like, Yeah, no, that's what we should do. Maybe people will finally stop being in complete denial about about everything that's happening to them if they could actually speak. It's so easy for people to ignore even other humans who don't speak their language. And Mm -hmm. it's completely easy for them to ignore what's obviously being experienced by animals. Right. So I'm glad to have the opportunity to talk about that because it, it hit me on so many levels. Like, yeah, I find it funny and intriguing, but like, you know, my cat and I understand each other enough and and she gets to live her life and I get to live mine. It kind of reminds me of that discussion we had on Flock Friday last week. I mentioned we had vegan nurses on and one of them, I think it was Claire, was talking about how she has treated people who are dying of COVID, like literally dying and they're in the hospital. They're so, so sick. And they still don't think they have COVID. Right. This is Cla- They still don't think it's a serious disease. Yeah. Claire Madrigal. They think it's something else that's going on. Yeah. Claire Madrigal, new flock member. So welcome to the flock. And Chandra Gurnow, who's one of my closest friends, uh, were our two guests. And you're right. I mean, denial is is complicated. Powerful. Yeah. And it's we think we think back, most of us have eaten animals in our youth and and maybe even after our youth. And we think back to, like, the fact that we were once in denial, so therefore that person can, like, get over their denial, too. But it isn't always that simple. I mean, I think it, it like you said, Claire, I mean, it was, I've heard this before, people saying, like, people with, like, the noses, uh, their, the tubes out of their noses or whatever, like, still denying COVID. Like, what what does it take? I mean, you could watch, uh, an, a, you could watch a chicken being utterly abused and still and then murdered in, in the most horrific way and families torn apart and still be like what that's fine it seems fine to me because because den- denial like that that part of you that would say fine is not like I wouldn't even go so far as to understand that people are saying that's fine. I don't know what the mechanism is that goes on in people's brain. And obviously, I don't know when I'm in denial about things because I'm in denial. So, so you know, it's scary. But but it's deep, like much deeper than I had ever thought before. I, I think it's similar to I mean, something I've been thinking about uh, people who are seriously devoted to uh, the president, the current president. Um is that there's something cult-like about it. Like, this isn't every Trump supporter, but for some of them, it seems like they they just see him as, a, as completely different than who he actually is. Mm-hmm. Like, it's just, it's so hard to understand. And, I, you know, I think it it's not just denial. I mean, I guess a cult is, is denial, but when it's focused on a particular person mm-hmm. and when it gets really, really powerful, so you just don't, you lose touch with reality, and, mm-hmm. and, you know, in just t- in talking about it, I think that's what happens with meat eaters as well, that it's it's almost like a cult. Right. Like that that like that denial of, uh, you know, somebody with covid who's dying is not that different from the denial of somebody who is told that they have heart disease or uh, mm-hmm. whatever, particularly heart disease and they're going to die. And they still don't. It's not only that they find themselves unable to to stop eating meat, they still don't really understand that that would help them, yeah. even though they're being told that. Like, like it's like a refusal inside to see to see the truth. And it's like it is like a cult. It's like 
you believe something that's completely different from the rest of the world and you cling to it. I mean, look at the Jim Jones incident. I mean, that was years ago. I'm not sure everybody's familiar with it, but it's pretty famous. It's when people drank the Kool-Aid. They actually Mm -hmm. they actually joined in suicide uh, because they were told to. And that crazy one, I can't remember what it was called, but they 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 thought they they all killed themselves because they thought it meant they were going they would go to outer space into some spaceship like mm-hmm. intelligent, well-educated people like but once once that force, that denial, that cult, that whatever it is, takes a hold mm-hmm. of people. Wow. It is powerful. And that's what we're up against. The thing is, is that it is it is something that can be overcome. But, you know, it is what we're up against. Yeah. And you were reminding me that uh, I was on Twitter this past this past week, and I actually saw that you tweeted at Chris Hayes, who, you know, from MSNBC, and he said something or other like, you know, my first Thanksgiving, making a turkey by myself, and also just for a really small gathering, and I don't know what to do, what should I do? And you wrote, basically, uh, don't consume a turkey, because that turkey is has a will to live and a heart. And like, you know, you, ta- you spoke to the sentient level there. It was a beautiful tweet. I'm not giving it any justice at all. So people oh, should follow you on Twitter. It wasn't that big a deal. It wasn't that big you're a deal. At, you're at Marisol on Twitter, M-A-R-I-S-U-L. And I responded as well. And I was like, you know, try to work your field rows this year because... And then I, I drew the connection between, you know, COVID starting with animal exploitation. And then, of course, it is disproportionately impacting people with underlying health conditions, many of which are underlying health conditions due to animal consumption and 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 you know like not to waste time on all of the asshole comments because it's the internet uh, but but the the fact is that it's even more annoying when people are super smart and very progressive and just don't get it about animals you know i spoke about Rach- rachel maddow in the past who i love and then damn it why isn't she vegan and she talks about going fishing all the time. Oh, my God. And Chris Hayes is, like, in a similar category, uh, you know, to Rachel Maddow. Uh, but I, it's the same thing with masks. Like, when you're in a progressive area and people are weird about masks, like, they're not wearing yeah, them. Yeah, that's where I am. Right, that's, that's true. You all, are. All very progressive lefties. I mean, a lot of the people I know where I live and and, and most of them pretty well off. Uh, much more, much better on like the poor person in the group, and the complete like never wear, never wear a mask outside. I mean, I think they do inside. I don't know. I never go inside anywhere, so I wouldn't know. But you know, here I am wearing a mask or putting it on to start talking to them, and just completely oblivious. Yeah, you know, all of these things are. I, I think we've labeled twelve ways in which things are connected. People right. are not that complicated. They're just weird. Hard to make sense of. Yeah, it, it is in hard to so make sense so many different of. ways. Right. Well, fortunately, your guest for today makes a lot of sense. So we'll be getting to that in a moment. First, though. We have our vegan businesses, but can I just tell you a really quick thing first before we get into that? Sure. Because on the flip side of that is that I have been seeing... I just want to give people some hope. Okay. So on the flip side of all of that disconnect that we just talked about, I, I've been, I've seen a few mentions of veganism in, in the media in the last few weeks that like were just there. And I uh, like, I, I always love that. You know what I mean? Like, it's like, oh, wait, that was a vegan mention. It was like normal to be vegan. Like, that's how we're going to 
that's one of the ways we're going to change the world. I mentioned recently that on The Connors, which I love that show, because of Sarah Gilbert being vegan, like there's all these vegan mentions. Well, in addition to that, I was watching this documentary on uh, Kathy Griffin in the last week. It's on HBO. It's called A Hell of a Story. And it's about the fallout that she received from holding up that like fake bloody Donald Trump head on her on her social media. And in the documentary, which also includes her stand-up routine about it, she started talking about uh, Chrissy Hind, who's a vegan, and, like, T- Kathy Griffin was, like, so excited that she had a vegan restaurant, and, like, that was just there. I was, like, waiting for the punchline. There wasn't really a punchline about that. And then she even mentioned that she was going to get some schnitzel and thought, oh, maybe I'll ask for a tofu schnitzel. And I was like, tofu schnitzel? Yes, Kathy. So that made me super happy. Next day, I turn on Shark Tank for the first time in my life, other than knowing when a couple people have been on, including including Wild Earth, which was on Shark Tank. So I had tuned into that one. But I turned it on, and there's Pan's Vegan Jerky, Mushroom Jerky. And you can find it at mushroomjerky.com. And there he was on Shark Tank fooling the judges who were eating the jerky thinking it was meat. And then they realized it was it was made out of mushrooms. And then there was like a bidding war for it. And I was like, oh, that's so I great. just turned, I know, I turned the TV on. And they were like, one of the things that the judges were talking about were like the power of the plant-based food industry. And I was like, what planet am I on? So I just want to offer that as a counterpoint to the disconnect. Because there's ways it's connecting. It's just going to be slow and steady. So with that in mind. Well, I don't think it's going to be slow and steady. I think it's going to be slow and steady. You know, I, I, I ascribe to the tipping point phenomenon. Slow and steady until we reach some point that gets past that, like, crazy denial. And and then it's all going to change. But you'd think it would be a global pandemic, Right. Like, you'd think that this would be the year that everyone went vegan. Oh, my God. Admittedly, you would. Here I am getting negative again. All right. Another thing that gives us hope and joy and satisfaction is our vegan businesses uh, program that we have started early this year when COVID started as a means of supporting some of our favorite vegan businesses. uh, A lot of businesses are really struggling this year. And so we set up our henhouse.org slash Vegan businesses, which has a form if you like any businesses or support any and you want us to shout it out, just fill out that form and we'll keep an eye out for it. So the businesses that we mention here are a mixture of the ones that show up on that list, ones that Marianne and I have tried and ones that the rest of the Arjenas team has tried. So uh, just getting getting us started here, for those of you in, in California, Veggie E.K., that's Q-U-E, in case I'm not saying it um, exactly the way I should be. Veggie E.K. is a Latina woman-owned and run deli and diner in Whittier, right outside of L.A. The owner, Laura Jardin, is uh, an incredible vegan activist who has organized a vegan food festival called La Vida Verde Fest, the first vegan festival in the East Side, which is a big deal. And at the deli, they have got, like, truly delectable-looking breakfast burritos and burgers and tacos and tortas and nachos and so much more. And all of it is available for carryout due to COVID. So regardless of whether you're in L.A. or not, like, I do encourage people to find them online and follow them on social because that really actually does help to get the numbers up. So find them at VeggieEK.com. That's V-E-G-G-I-E-Y-Q-U-E.com. Oh, it looks Amazing. It's so cool. 
So does the food at Lush Life Vegan Bakery, which is a woman black owned plant based bakery. You can find it at all one word, lushlifeveganbakery.com. And it's in Madison, Wisconsin, and ships orders across the U.S. So the owner, Carrie Seward, offers a variety of mouthwatering cakes, cookies, and pastries, such as cookies and cream cake. Oh, my God. How many good things can you have in the name of one product? Chocolate peanut butter cake. Oh, there's (laughs) gets a lot. Um, Cinnamon rolls, oatmeal cookies, lots more. You can even customize your order to create the perfect dessert. Does that mean they bake stuff to order for you? Because that would be good for me. Or you can purchase a gift card uh, and they donate $5 of every purchase to Black Lives Matter. That looks amazing. Yeah, so cool. And finally, this isn't a business, but we wanted you to know about a special online screening of The Last Pig, an amazing film by Alison Argo, who joined us back on episode 327 to talk about. You should listen to her interview And this film will be on PBS in the future, but in the meantime, you can join a special streaming event from now until December 4th to raise funds and awareness for four sanctuaries dedicated to helping pigs in need. Catskill Animal Sanctuary, Central Texas Pig Rescue, Hog Haven Farm, and the Pig Preserve. You will have eight days to watch the film at your leisure, and on December 4th, you can join a live discussion with the film's director and all four sanctuary directors. Tickets are only $5 or more if you can afford it, and you can find out more at thelastpig.com. Oh, and also, by the way, we had Bob Comis, the farmer who was at the center of the story told in The Last Pig, on the podcast on episode 272. Also a really powerful interview. Yeah, that was an amazing interview. I remember it well, even though it was a while ago. But now let's get to another amazing interview. Nicole Rawling is the co-founder and executive director of the Material Innovation Initiative, which is a nonprofit working to accelerate the development of next generation sustainable materials for the fashion, automotive and home goods industries with a focus on replacing animal based materials. Nicole is an experienced manager and a lawyer And in her most recent role as the Director of International Engagement at the Good Food Institute, she built the organization's five international programs and oversaw all international operations and strategy, working with scientists, entrepreneurs, companies, investors, and governments all over the world to help create the plant-based food revolution. Now she's moved on to materials. It's so exciting. And she will be joining Jasmine right after this. If you like what you're listening to, and I hope you do, then please consider taking a minute out of your day today to leave us a friendly review. You can do it on Apple Podcasts or on Spotify or Stitcher or on Facebook or wherever you listen to podcasts or wherever you're listening to this. The more we get out there, the more our henhouse will be in front of people's eyeballs when they're putting in search terms in their podcasts and the more we could join forces together to elevate the voices of the animals and change the world for them. So thank you so much in advance for leaving us a friendly review. Welcome to our hen house, Nicole. Oh, thank you so much, Jasmine. I'm thrilled to be here. I am so excited to talk to you. You know, we, we interview a lot of people and what you're doing is unique. It's very different from a lot of our guests. And so I, I also have so many questions for you uh, on a personal level. So I'm just going to jump in. What is Material Innovation Initiative? Great. Well, so we are a new nonprofit. We just got our 501c3 certification this May. And you know, we, we're 
We're working on transforming the materials industry. So we think that, you know, industry should not be using animals. Animals are also bad for the environment um, when you produce them in, in mass. And so we're working on creating replacements for leather, silk, wool, down, fur, and exotic skins. And yeah, I'm sure you're listening to part of the Good Food Institute. I was there for two years running the international program and just saw, saw how successful it was. And so basically, we think of ourselves as the Good Food Institute for materials. Well, I think the Good Food Institute does incredible work. And that's such a great model for for you. I have this book coming out. When this interview airs, it will be coming out in two weeks. And it's just kind of like a vegan manifesto. And when every chapter is a different subject. And I, I was really shocked when I was deep diving into the leather industry and just the industry uh uh, for you know, animal skins, whether it's leather or another another animal skin, I was really surprised to learn how bad not only the leather industry is for the planet, not to mention the animals, but also a lot of the vegan leather alternatives. So I have so many questions for you. I I guess I just want to sort of jump in with that. Like a lot of people who are vegan have been eating vegan meat for a long time, or maybe they don't even eat vegan meat. And yet we have this giant industry of, you know, lab grown meat or clean meat or new meat or cultured meat or whatever you want to call it, which is basically the only, the only hope we have. <laughs> dare I, dare I oversimplify and say that. And yet we're, we've been fine for our, for, for our veganism. And it's the same thing, I think, with materials. Like, I, I've been shopping at Vote Couture, like Payless or whatever, for a long time. And yet, we have this giant need for the material innovation initiative. So, can you help me unpack a little bit about why vegan leather isn't the right answer here and why we have this need? Well, I think there's there's two ways I want to answer your question. I think number one, even the leather on the market right now, so the synthetic leather that's made out of PU or PVC, it's petroleum-based, but it is still better for the environment than traditional leather. And that was that was a shock to me. I think there's a lot of different considerations, but if you look at the overall environmental impact, you're still better off buying those synthetics than you are traditional leather. But I think all of us will agree as a society, we do need to move away from petroleum-based products. They are not sustainable long-term. And I think what you just mentioned in the food industry, it's been so successful. We can replicate leather out of plants. There's no need to use petroleum. There's no need to use animals. And there are a number of companies right now who are doing it. They just need more help, right? This is the beginning of this industry, just like where, where the plant-based food industry was maybe five or six years ago. You had the veggie burgers that still had maybe corn and, and black beans in them. They were geared towards vegetarians, right? I, I ate them. I'm sure all your listeners did, but they weren't geared towards omnivores. And so that's exactly what we're trying to do is re replicate animal leather with plant-based alternatives that everyone will love. Yeah. Well, I mean, agreed. This isn't 
I think a lot of our listeners and myself included can relate to that. It's not about us. Like uh, the Impossible Burger being at Burger King might not be about us. It's not like the people at Burger King are saying, hey, let's 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 have an option for the vegans. <laughs> they <laughs> they want an option for the non-vegans who might want a vegan burger or, or, or whatever. And it's probably the same in the material land. I feel like people tend to think of materials made from animals, particularly leather, as byproducts or what would otherwise go to waste as if they're not an important part of the income stream of animal exploiters. Can you shed some light on this? What is your response to those claims? Yeah, so I I have two answers to that as well. I think number one, there's a lot of environmental impact from turning that animal hide into leather. It's actually a 26-step process with a lot of chemicals that are both bad for the environment and animals. And if you think about it, it's actually, you're taking a skin that will rot, right? It will naturally biodegrade within months if you you leave it out, but you're turning it into a material that will last for decades, right? That is really, that takes a lot of chemicals. Mm -hmm. So we're actually better off from a sustainability standpoint from just, you know, having those, having those hides rot and then turn them into leather. Mm -hmm. The income standpoint, leather actually accounts for 5% of the value of the cow. So, and the margins in animal agriculture are very low. So if we're, we really are propping up the industry by purchasing these, this leather. And actually, I don't know if your readers have read the Rethink X report, on food and agriculture. It came out last year, and I know they're putting a couple more blog posts out in the next month, specifically on materials. It's a, it's a, great, it's a great read if anyone hasn't read it yet. But they do, they've stated that they believe that in order to end the beef industry, we really do need to focus on those co-products. And out of all of the co-products from beef in particular, Leather makes up 50% of the profits. Wow. Okay, we'll link to that in the show notes for this episode. I haven't read it. I want to read that. Oh, gosh, so much here. What materials are you most excited about? So I think for us, we're really excited about particular types of technology. So just like in the food industry, there's cultivation, which is taking a cell from an animal and growing it in a lab, like in a bioreactor with cell culture media, and that turns into an an animal hide, right? You're taking those exact cells and replicating them. And then the other type of technology is precision fermentation, which is actually producing the collagen from whatever animal you want to replicate. And collagen makes up about 80% of an animal hide. So taking that collagen and inserting it into a yeast or bacteria, and then having that yeast and bacteria grow that collagen. Those are both really promising technologies, um, and they will replicate animal materials. And then there's some other companies who are working on what we're calling a a mechanical chemical process. So it's really just taking a plant, so whether it's rubber or cork or byproducts in the pineapple industry or cacti or even fruit and putting it through a process with heat and usually moisture or drying and then grinding it up to create leather-like material. 
Yeah, I've been seeing that popping up more and more like pina texts or something like that mm-hmm. at, in sort of high-end fashion shows, things like that. And it's always very exciting. Is it just high-end or is this something that's going to be accessible to everyone? Well, we talk about this just like the Impossible Burger, right? When the Impossible Burger came out, I think in 2017, it was at high-end New York City restaurants for around $19, mm-hmm. right? That's, that's really the equivalent of where we are right now with the materials. And then take two years later and it's in White Castle, right? And so it just takes investment in these, in these materials. We think there needs to be more competition, right? This is the way the market works. The more competition, the more innovation, and then the more they'll be able to lower the price and increase the quality. Okay. And I brought up the fashion industry. I like the idea that this is going to become more accessible as the years go by. I do think that you are paving new new ways forward. It's interesting to be in veganism for so long and to just see like what starts to pop up because the second I heard about your organization, I was like, oh, finally. And I'm not sure I, it even occurred to me before it to that it, that we needed it. And as soon as it started, I was like, we need this. <laughs> so it's, it's interesting to see how we are evolving. And of course, materials are something we should be hugely focusing on. Now, I am curious if you could just elaborate a little bit more on the most substantial environmental implications of the fashion industry. You did start to touch on it, but with climate change in, you know, not only upon us, but like in, in, in full raging force right now, can you elaborate a little bit on those environmental implications? Yeah. Well, I mean, where I'll start when we're talking about climate change, we're really concerned with greenhouse gases And according to the United Nations Partnership on Sustainable Fashion, the fashion industry contributes 10% of all global greenhouse gas emissions. And it really is because there's really long supply chains and energy-heavy production in fashion, right? There's, if you think about it too, from from the standpoint of leather, right, you have to have the you have to grow the cow, right? You have to transport the cow to the slaughterhouse. You have to kill the cow. You have to skin it. You have to put the entire hide through this 26-step process. And then that's, you only then have material. Mm-hmm. That then needs to go to bought by a company to create whatever the end product is. And that also generally goes through a long process as well. So number one, the fashion industry is a major contributor to global climate change. Mm -hmm. Then once you look within the fashion industry, right, what, what is the biggest impact? And it is materials. So materials account for 72% of all of the fashion industry's environmental impact. Uh, That's from caring. They're, they're a leader in the space of trying to figure out you know, how we can be more sustainable in the fashion industry. And we've even talked to brands who use higher numbers internally. So some brands even think that 80% of their environmental impact comes from their choice of raw materials. So now we know that raw materials are the issue. So which raw materials are the worst? And I'm sure your readers won't be surprised, or sorry, your listeners won't be surprised to hear that animal materials are the worst. So out of the top five materials with the biggest negative environmental impact, animal materials are four of them. We've got silk, leather, alpaca wool, and then traditional wool. Wow. 
Uh, so many things about silk, you know, it's considered like such a fringe issue for a lot of vegans, just like honey is. It's like those things, you know, those, those not as egregiously cruel, but actually I think silk is pretty egregiously cruel. I think it's like a misnomer that it's not. And um, can you actually expand on that? Like what is wrong with the silk industry? Well, so number one, around 1 trillion silkworms are used every year for silk production. And to put that in comparison, it's 1.4 billion cows. So it's significantly larger number of sentient creatures. And then two, they're boiled alive. So that's, if you think about it, right, if they're allowed, there's some silk called a himsa silk which the, the silkworms are allowed to, to get out of the cocoon, but it's a very small percentage. And there's some other issues with that, that that we're looking into. But in order to keep that silk cocoon all in one strand, they need to kill the silkworm in it because mm-hmm. otherwise the silkworm is going to break the strands when it emerges. And so um, we just personally believe that you know, animals aren't, aren't here for our use. And so we shouldn't be boiling alive one trillion worms when there's there's plenty of alternatives. Well, what can be used instead of silk? Like what can be substituted for it? So right now the options really are of a lower quality, right? So we're talking a polyester or nylon. Again, we're not, we don't think those are long-term solutions. But there are a number of very promising companies producing alternatives to silk. And like I mentioned, that precision fermentation is very promising for silk production. So I'm sure some of your readers have heard of Bolt Threads. They've got Microscale Silk, Spiber, Spidey Tech, Amsilk. There's a lot of companies who are, who are working on producing these these materials. And actually, we do have a really interesting video on our website under the reports section on uh, silk production. Oh, cool. I actually remember, you know, we, we, we all know that person or maybe we've been that person who before we went vegan, there was something we didn't do. There was some part of animal exploitation that was just awful. So we didn't partake in it like, like maybe veal or, you know, we would never eat veal or we would not ever eat a lobster or some, something. And then we had this weird cognitive dissonance where we somehow still justified all of the other aspects of animal exploitation that we continue to partake in. I I met one person one time who for years before she was vegan would not wear silk because of how cruel it was. And I always think of her when like silk comes up because like, yeah, it's pretty awful when you think about it. I just think, you know, people are like, oh, worms, whatever. But I mean, why? Like any aspect of veganism can go back down to the question of like, why consume that when there are ethical alternatives? And that's like, what I love so much about what you're doing, because a lot of people just equate, you know, vegan shoes with like ugly plastic, cheap, unethical labor things that destroy the planet. And you're saying that it's a lot worse when it's an animal product. I think that these are talking points that like I could get better at and that a lot of vegans could get better at in general. How to address that when someone's trying to call us out on our pay less shoes. <laughs> well, I think that's why we always use that example of, I mean, when people actually think about it, that a hide is skin, 
right? It's, it's skin. You, it will biodegrade if you just leave it out there. I mean, it's, it's a very natural, like living, living creature, but you have to use a lot of chemicals to turn that into something else, right? I think that really helps put it into perspective. And obviously, you know, none of us want to be using petroleum-based products, right? I think that um, we really do need to move away from those. But on on current analysis of environmental impact, they're still better than traditional. Mm. Yeah, I mean, there's it's it's interesting to like remember. I'm I'm 41, but I remember going vegan at 24, and I, I remember thinking like I don't have a lot of money, and yet I want to stop eating animals. And all of the myths were slapping me in the face that it was going to be expensive, and it, then it wasn't expensive, or like I was a I. I thought, oh, I have to only eat out of these fancy vegan restaurants. But then I realized that lots of places had vegan options, even if it was like, you know, a cheap bean burrito place on the corner or the Chinese place on the corner. It's the same thing when it comes to leather alternatives and and, and materials that are the ethical alternative to animal products. I think a lot of people have in their heads that that's just going to be really hard financially. Is that true? Like, is I know you're saying that supply is driven by demand, but are there ways for us to be ethical in our consumption choices as vegans even now? I think, yes. I think number one, my point would be, I think we all just consume too much, right? We don't need, and I will say this coming from somebody who used to have a huge closet full of shoes, right? And I think the pandemic can also show, show us that too, do we really need 20 shoes? Yeah. Do we really need 40 shoes? Do we need, you know, five bags? I don't really think we do, right? I think that we could spend a little bit more on something that's higher quality, better for the environment and, you know, lasts long-term. And I think sometimes that's hard to know. I mean, I just bought a pair of boots actually when I was like speaking in Estonia I bought this like really cute pair of vegan boots and it was, they were pretty expensive and they, they fell apart within like one season. So sometimes that's really hard to know. So I think it's finding the high quality brands that you can trust. And we do have, actually, I think it's going to be starting next week. We're putting out on our social media, like holiday gift guides. So some options of where to buy really nice, sustainable vegan materials. Oh, cool. And you're touching, I'm going to have to check that out and bookmark it um, because you're touching on something that's also really important to me personally. And I think important to a lot of our listeners who don't just begin and end with veganism, but look deeper into our consumption habits. You're talking about fast fashion and the problems with it. I remember, you know, aside from going vegan, there were then a lot of other things that came into my life that like blew my mind. I, when I learned about you know, sex trafficking. When I learned about fast fashion, I read this book, which I'm sure you know, which is called Overdressed, The Shockingly High Cost of Cheap Fashion. And it sort of like blew my mind. And I learned about how deep the exploitation goes. So I really like this tact that you're on right now about how throwaway clothing, it doesn't have to be our normal. Can you 
give any advice to any vegans listening to this who, you know, maybe like me are like, oh, you know what? I have this new little shoe holder in my closet and I have too many shoes to fit on it, but I don't want to get rid of any of them. And like, yet I really want, I aspire to be this person who does not partake in fast fashion. Where do we even begin? So I would say number one, I mean, I would never... We, I don't throw out anything unless it's really, you know, unusable. Again, there's no need to throw anything out unless you're donating it to somebody else who could really use it. And then, you know, you're, you're really, you know, reusing it. So I really think find something that's classic and can last through multiple fashion seasons. I think that's part of the issue as well is that the fashion industry makes money from consumption, right? So the more that trends change, the more you, I, I still remember my sister is actually in fashion. She works at Burberry and she's always been extremely fashionable. And she made fun of me once because I was wearing like a block heeled shoe when that was out of fashion. I was like, <laughs> Number one, I don't care. Number two, even if I did, I'm not going to get rid of this because it's going to be back, back in fashion in two years, right? I'm going to save it for later. I think that's, I think that's the point is finding things that will just be classic across different seasons. And they tend to be more expensive. I know I'm kind of saving up for one of the Rothy's shoes. Oh. Um, they're, I mean, they're $150 each, but I feel like I wear flats all the time, you know, that they can go in the washing machine. That's something that that's worth investing in, you know, rather than, you know, say five pairs of other shoes that are $20, but I throw away after a few months. I mean, this is one of my favorite parts of being vegan and being an animal activist is that we get to look at our life from a thousand foot high and, and ask ourselves the questions of like, mm, are these choices really representative of our worldviews? But going going back to what you're doing with materials at Material Innovation Initiative, uh, what services do you provide to companies interested in innovating in this space? Yeah, so we we see ourselves in the middle of the ecosystem. Like we we do not produce materials. We are kind of helping everybody else. So it really depends on what the company is. So if it's what we're calling innovators, so they're the material companies. If it's an innovator, we can help them with a lot of different things. So, well, right now we're in the middle of hiring a scientist. So if any readers know scientists interested in this space, we're, we're hiring. But offering advice on what we think, where the industry is going, right? What are the brands looking for? And so one of the, one of the big things, the conversations I have with most of the innovators is we know your materials are better for the environment just because of all the work we've done. But people who aren't in this space don't necessarily know it. You need to actually prove that, right? So get a life cycle analysis light done on your material and your process because that's what's going to convince the brands to use your material, right? Even that simple type of advice, we need to rely upon data or how to market the materials, right? Sustainability really doesn't mean much. Like what, what are we talking about? Are we talking about all issues, land use, chemical use, right? water use, emissions, end of life? It's better to talk about the specifics, right? So why are you better? and give data if possible. And then we match them with, we look at pitch decks, we can look at business plans, we match them with investors. Actually, in a a really exciting story, there was one innovator who 
a few weeks ago, a few months ago, was raising uh, a round for, for the company. And some investors waited a few days, just three days to schedule calls. And the round was filled within those three days. Wow. Yeah. There were six investors who wanted in who weren't able to get in. And that's huge, right? The money's there. I think a lot of these, especially impact investors and who have made money in the food space, see this as the next area. And so we just need more innovators in the space. And then we do work with the big brands, mostly in fashion and automotive. We do want to work in home goods, but we don't have many connections there yet. And for them, it's talking to them about these different technologies, the different, t- the different companies, where we think the industry is going, and then matching them up with innovators that we think could meet their material needs. Mm. That is really cool. I love hearing that there's so much interest there, so much buzz there. I think it's like about... You know, it's about time. I have so, I have more questions about the materials, but I just keep wondering, like, given your portfolio, your given your resume, given your history in the animal protection movement in, in these unique ways, do you feel hopeful about this? I, I mean, is this something that you feel like, yeah, we're going to get this? Well, I think that, like, yeah, my, so my background for, for anyone who doesn't know me, I, I was, well, I still am a lawyer, but I was a practicing lawyer at some time and um, was suing factory farms for environmental violations. And we, we always won and nothing changed, right? It was just really frustrating because it just felt like those fines um, and even the court cases were part of doing business. And I really wanted to do something that was, that actually made change. And I've been vegetarian. So actually I'm going to be uh, 42 tomorrow. Oh, happy birthday. Well, happy birthday. It just passed by the time this airs. That's uh, fun. Yeah. So I've been vegetarian since I was around five and vegan. It was a transition kind of like you talked about. I justified European cheeses for a right. few years. Um, we're so weird. Like our brains are so weird. <laughs> it's like, I always use as an example that nobody's perfect. We try, just try and do the best you can. I grew up in Germany and I saw cows outside all the time. So it's like, oh, I saw it. You know, European cheeses is fine. No, it's not, right? It's just like, <laughs> it's hard to give up the cheese. Yes, I've I've been trying to convince people since I was very young that we shouldn't eat animals. And I just think that's really hard. I think the GFI model of ensuring that consumers have something that they want, right? So if it's food, it's something that's tasty, it's reasonably priced, and it's accessible, right? Like it's at Burger King. That's been very successful. And so we're, we're just doing the same thing, right? Substitute in quality or aesthetics, right? For taste. And then that's what consumers want. And I really do see that changing the whole industry because we're making the ethical choice, the easy choice, right? You're not asking people to sacrifice. And I think we're really just at the beginning. And, and for my encouragement, we have talked to 40 international, like top fashion brands. Like what do you think of top luxury French fashion brands? I would have never expected them to be interested in this space. I mean, it's, they are actively looking and we are actively helping them source these new materials. 
So it's really just a matter of time. I'm, I'm very optimistic. Oh, that's oh, that's so great. That's so interesting too, that you were working as a lawyer and we're like, well, that's not doing anything <laughs> because, you know, we, I think like we as activists, we as change makers from our various corners in our lives, we're trying to not only make the biggest change possible, but we also need to maintain our own sanity and not necessarily work in an in industry where things are not going to shift. I've also shifted how I try and advocate for animals in a variety of ways, some subtle, some not so subtle. And it's, it's great to hear hope. It's great to hear that like, there's so much interest here. We need to be able to appeal to a very big mainstream, not necessarily like a court case that is going to not necessarily make waves, but a, a clutch that everyone can, can have that is ethical and is reflective of their worldview and is cute. <laughs> you know, like we need vegan meat to taste good. We need it to be affordable and having pioneers like you at the front lines of that is like, is the only way we can, we can get there. So I, I have a few more questions about the materials itself. Will mushrooms save the world? <laughs> Uh, so yes, well, mycelium based leather, it's, you're really taking part of the mushrooms. You're taking the, the fungal spores and putting them on usually agricultural waste to then transform that waste into something that can be made into material. The mycelium is probably the furthest along right now. There are mycelium products on the market. So actually, if you look on our website, we do have a whole list of the different materials, so like leather, and then what companies are working in that area. Mm-hmm. And so there's there's quite a few with with mycelium. And actually, one of the companies, Bolt Threads, just announced a partnership with a number of top international brands like Stella McCartney and Adidas and Lululemon to work on the, that mycelium-based leather. That's so cool. You know, it's funny. Sometimes I look at an animal product and I just think, whoever looked at that and thought that would be delicious? Like whoever looked at a duck and thought, I'm going to fatten her liver and call it a delicacy. And it's always angered me so much. Like at what point did someone decide that rennet was a good idea? And yet there's an industry for it. But flipping that on its head, I love the idea that these like super weird things can be made into leather. What is the weirdest thing so far that's been turned into leather? Oh, goodness. Um... So the, I mean, the mycelium taking fungal spores, I think is probably pretty weird. I'm looking at our whole list now. I mean, there's a lot of like apple skin or even mango waste, a wine, the waste from wine production. Yeah. Yeah. Bamboo, hemp. There, I mentioned pina text before. Natural fiber welding uses like rubber and cork. Is there a coffee thing or did I make that up in my head? It's like in some file folder in the back of my brain. Actually, I did read something about that recently. Yeah. I think there is a new company who's working on coffee production and and the 
the byproducts going into a material. You had me at coffee and wine. <laughs> That's <laughs> basically all I care about. Uh, and you know, they could not only keep me sane in this insane world, but they could keep me warm. Uh, speaking of which, for those of us who hate being cold, like me, I just moved back to New York from LA. It's very cold already. What is the best material to use to stay warm in these Northeast winters without using animals? Because honestly, Nicole, when people climb mountains, they're not wearing fur, are they? No. Well, yeah. I mean, I'm sure people wore a long time ago, but technology's changed, right? And and so now there, there are a lot more like Gore-Tex. I know I used to ski a lot and use Gore-Tex. I think actually in our newsletter that just went out Monday, we profiled a number of down alternatives. So obviously you can get some, some nice warm down alternative jackets and Look, there's a couple fur alternatives, but um, I know, at least for me, I'm always worried. What are people going to think, right? As a yes. human, if, if it looks too real. Right, same. But, yeah, and then wool, wool, I will say, is actually probably the hardest. Wool really, I mean, biology is amazing, right? The sheep has been able to produce hair that not only like, keeps them warm, but can also keep them cool will keep them dry, right? It really is an amazing material. The one the one company that I'm really excited about that's in your hometown is, and you can purchase products from them right now, is KD New York, mm-hmm. a um, vegetarian cashmere Ugh. that just looks beautiful. I, yeah, it's, one, it's on my gift list. I would love one of those for... Well, I hope those in your life who love you are listening to this. <laughs> that was a nice hint right there. Yeah, um, not so just, just having it continue to make an appearance on your holiday gift guide. <laughs> just like <laughs> you should curate the holiday gift guide yourself based on your own <laughs> needs. Wait, why is there a new pot and pan on this list? <laughs> that doesn't. That has nothing to do with her organization. Oh, that's a that's a sign <laughs> that's for your family. Yeah, I get it. That's funny. Okay, well, switching gears just a little bit, what are some of the marketing challenges? Because I, I feel like most consumers still consider the like, you know, quote unquote, real thing, whether it's wool or silk or whatever, the higher end choice. I, I don't, I obviously don't think that's true, but that is still the, a lot of the, the public mentality about it. So how, what can be, what can be done about it when you're marketing? So actually, if I could address the consumer research first, I had the same exact perception until we did a we did two consumer research studies, one in the United States and one in China. And it actually it showed me something different. So if I can, I'm gonna give these statistics. So actually, so 55% of consumers in the United States would prefer purchasing a leather alternative to leather. Hmm. So over half. Now, the demographics are all across the United States. So we use an independent service. This wasn't just like our vegan friends, right? This was an independent service that, that surveyed people from 18 to 65. It was really evenly split along genders. It was all across the United States. So not just like New York and San Francisco. And it was um, all economic backgrounds. Hmm. So, and then out of that... would have switched because of animals and 29% because of the environment, which shocked me because what we've been hearing is that most people are switching because of the environment, not animals. And then I'm sure, you know, everyone knows about cultivated meat, right? 
well, are people going to eat meat that's grown in a lab, right? But for materials, 76% of U.S. consumers are likely to purchase leather grown from cells in a factory. Wow. It's huge. And then China is actually even higher. So 66% of consumers in China would prefer purchasing a leather alternative. And 80% would are likely to purchase lab-grown leather. Hmm. That's cool. I love that. I mean, I think that those kinds of consumer reports are really necessary because even I, you know, and I work in veganism, I had a different idea about that too. I thought, you know, there's going to be a really giant mountain to climb before we can get people on board with the alternatives. But it's nice to hear that that's not necessarily the case. Well, and I think it really is. I think we are becoming more aware Right. And I think that's the thing is nobody chooses to hurt animals because they want to hurt animals. Nobody chooses to hurt the environment because they want to. Right. I think that it's either a lack of education or a lack of opportunities. Right. I think as long as we have those products, whether it's food products or material products or whatever else available that are animal free and more sustainable, that I think people really will buy them. And so right now we have not focused on the marketing. I think it's worth having just creating this discussion because the more we start discussing it, the more I think people will be aware. And then when the products are really available, I think it'll be easier for them to make those choices. Yeah, for sure. And things are moving. Things are shifting really quickly. I mean, I remember getting involved in veganism and in the animal rights movement, like, you know, 15 years ago or so. And it was very different. It was extremely different. You know, the Good Food Institute has certainly changed everything very quickly. And uh, I'm sure that that's because of the the rock star team there. I'm sure they were really sad when you left to go start this. Maybe they were supportive and sad. I don't know. But we have to kind of do that dance between leading the charge and and reflecting what the what the public is ready for and pushing the public a little bit further and then providing the opportunities and the materials that will get them a little further and just continue with that dance is that something that you're excited about just that the kind of psychological process of the organization and the movement that you're leading that's a really interesting question. Um, I mean, personally, I really wish it was just people would make the right choice. You know, that people would just, and I, you know, I, I'm surrounded by, by vegans as well. And I, I really just wish people would say, okay, yeah, I don't want to hurt animals. I'm not going to do it. And it doesn't really matter, right? What else I need to buy, or I need to drive a little bit further out of my way to go to a different grocery store, or, you know, I go to this restaurant and I don't necessarily get my top choice, but I have another really great meal. Like, it'd be really nice if people just make that choice. I really, I haven't seen that, right? I mean, I think maybe Gen Z, there's a lot of promise. I actually have two human children who are both vegan and also little animal activists too. And I have seen with, with even their generation a lot more awareness of these of these issues. But for me, I think it really... And, and the thing I like about the movement as well, I just want to say this, is I think there's so much opportunity for different approaches, right? There's not one right answer, right? I think we need to, to all sort of take 
do what we can and try different strategies. The strategy that really resonates with me right now is just changing the changing the options for consumers. I just think that if they have those alternatives that are are good for the environment, don't hurt animals, are reasonably priced and beautiful, that they will purchase them. Mm-hmm. So I'm, I'm very optimistic that that's gonna that's gonna work. But I do think we need people out there talking about you know why why we need to make these more ethical choices. Mm-hmm. Well, I sure hope that this you know trash can of a year will inspire people to somehow make more conscious choices and maybe make choices that are in alignment with the world they want and the world they want to be a part of. I can't believe you started it this year. What's what's that been like? What a year to start something like this. I know. If only we could have predict the future. Yeah, it's been interesting. We it's been a little bit of a challenge. I was hoping we could ramp up a little quicker. We don't have we don't have a scientist yet, and we really need a director of innovation. But we have had a few funders who really do care about animals understand our mission and help us through this year. Mm-hmm. We actually just finished a $150,000 raise that let me bring on a new team member. And then um, we're trying to raise another hundred the rest of this year. And with that, we'll be bringing on somebody to really work with the innovators to help these material companies get going. And, and for us too, which I haven't actually mentioned, is identifying white spaces right? So where, where do we need the most work? Where do we need to put that effort into the scientific development? Where do there need to be more companies? Like I mentioned, wool. it'd be really great to have more scientific development and companies in alternative wools. There's just not a lot at the moment. So I need, I need somebody to come in and, and help us with all of that analysis. Hmm. That's cool. I mean, I think just putting it out there and like, it, it sounds like you're not only where you should be in terms of the growth of the organization, but you're moving quickly, even though not all of the pieces are in place yet. I'm sure if I spoke to you in a year, you would have all of this in motion. So yeah, I think it, it now is the time for finding those little holes of what we don't yet have within veganism, within ethical alternatives to animal exploitation in the material space and in the food space and creating the alternative. Now, I I would love to keep you on if you can stay on for a couple more minutes um, for our bonus content, because I have a few more questions for you. But one thing I didn't ask you that I'd love your your take on, Nicole, is do you hate the word faux or do you embrace it? I don't know yet. We're actually going to do a consumer research study on that to see what, what people think. I think it is a very easy term right now to use to describe it, but um, we do want these materials to be seen as desirable and luxury and, and have inherent value on their own. So I'm not sure long-term, I think that's the right term, but for right now, I know a number of companies are using it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you mentioned, and I agree, the like, oh, I don't want to wear faux fur because I don't want to like normalize the look of it. Though I also appreciate that some people really lean into that and they want it to look 
like the traditional exploitative fur and maybe they'll put like a giant no fur button on it or something. But yeah, I feel the same way about like animal patterns. I always feel kind of weird about it. <laughs> I don't know why. But uh, anyway, it's it's really good to know that all of this is out there. And I would love to catch up with you again next year and just maybe you had a lot of dot, dot, dots in what you were talking about with the growth of your organization. I'd love to kind of touch base again and see how you're doing and how the next year of our lives shift your organization. So my final question for you, Nicole, is what do you want it to look like? What do you want, let's say, not a year, but let's say five years down the road? Like, what do you want your organization to look like? And how is that reflected by what the world looks like in terms of our consumption habits around materials? So honestly, I feel like the job of most nonprofits is to put themselves out of business, right? I I would love to be, I don't know if we could do that in five years, but I'd love to get to a point where we're really not needed anymore, where there is so much development in the space already that it's really taking off. Where I realistically hope us to be in five years is I need the key, the key team, right? So we need the scientists, the, the innovation specialists, communication leads. And then sure, you could figure this out from my background, but I do think international work is critical. I think we need people on the ground in the countries where these materials are being produced and where the, the end goods are also being produced, right? We should have people in China. We should have people in India, and then there's a lot of innovation in other areas of the world, like Israel. The Good Food Institute has a, operations in Israel that I, that I helped get off the ground. There's so much innovation in that country. So I think we really need to be able to expand our reach to bring in those, those really the most effective people all over the world. Mm, that's exciting. This is very hopeful and positive and beautiful, like actually physically beautiful too. Not only beautiful in terms of more beautiful choices, but beautiful because the leather alternatives are very beautiful and they feel nice and they have the possibility of unlocking for us something much deeper as vegans, as animal activists who want to mainstream this. So I appreciate all of the work that you've been doing behind the scenes and the work that you're doing now. I think you're definitely an unsung hero and I'm I'm hoping that everyone listening to this can support your efforts. So can you tell us how we can follow your work and support your efforts? Yeah, well, first I want to say, Jess, and I feel the same about you. I feel like um, it's such an honor to, to finally get to speak with you. And I think you've done so much for animals and it's really an honor to, to speak with you. Thank you. Yeah, for us. So our website is materialinnovation.org. Um, and you can find a lot of information on there about all of the material innovators. We put up reports on the different technology. We try and put up videos, like I mentioned, on silk technology. And then follow us on Facebook and Instagram. It's Material Innovation. And that's where I mentioned we're putting out our holiday gift guides, the ideas for, for things to purchase. And really, the thing that's so nice about following us on social media is we just have beautiful pictures of these these types of, of new materials. I think it's, it's really inspiring. Oh, great. I'll be following that. 
as soon as we're done with this interview, but do stay on for a few minutes, please, because I want to get a little more personal. And thank you again so much for joining us today in our hen house, Nicole. It's been really fun. You too, Jasmine. Thank you. Our Hen House has a family of podcasts. In addition to the Our Hen House podcast, which you're listening to right now, you can also listen to the Animal Law podcast or the Teaching Jasmine How to Cook Vegan podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you listen to podcasts. And if you like what you hear and what's not to like, please, please leave us a friendly review on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. It helps us tremendously because that's how we grow. And that's how we reach more and more people with information on how to change the world for animals. Thanks for listening. Anxieties are rising. Our first story is from one of our favorites, meetingplace.com and the Animal Ag Watch by Hannah Thompson Weeman. The name of this particular entry in her column is Meat Replacement Group Leader Tapped for USDA Transition Team. And that kind of says it all. <laughs> She's very anxious about this. This apparently has to do with the fact that, uh, as she says, one sign that the meat industry and animal agriculture need to be ready for changes under the new administration. Yay! Is the lineup of the recently announced USDA Transition Team. There does not seem to be anyone with a modern agriculture background, by which I'm sure she means factory farming, on the list. Of most concern to me is the inclusion of a staff member from the Good Food Institute, an organization that has clearly decided that meat, poultry, eggs, and dairy do not qualify as good food. Well, ain't that the truth? Yeah, I looked elsewhere, and this is uh, Sarah Big, and she has indeed been been appointed to this oversight uh, group. And that is like one of the most exciting things I've heard in a while. Hannah doesn't actually think that the administration, the new administration's plans call on encouraging con- reduced consumption of meat, though who knows? As she also points out, activist groups and political opponents have latched onto previous comments made by Harris, that's Kamala Harris, of course, regarding the dietary guidelines to say that the Biden-Harris team will, quote, cut America's meat. This is exciting. It's, it's so exciting to have something potentially good happening. Oh, Sarah Big, the, the future is now in your hands, isn't it? All right. Also from meetingplace.com, from Lisa Keefe's column, Show Me the Vaccine. And she starts off by whining for about five paragraphs about how hard her life has been. You know, other people's lives are harder than yours. You know, there is something like just, like, we all have a lot to complain about. But when you think about how much more uh, some people have to complain about, really, you know, keep it light. Anyway. Uh, in spite of that, that's not what I'm, I'm going to be talking about. She also then lists her predictions for the future. And I'm going to tell you, they're going to make you feel pretty good. For one thing, uh, she she thinks that e-commerce grocery shopping is going to grow. I'm sure that's true. Like once people find out they don't have to go to grocery stores all the time, why would they ever do it? For one thing, just the stench of the meat, which hits your face the minute you walk in the store half the time. But that's really not... <laughs> the reason she thinks it will happen. She thinks that, you know, people will just get used to that. It'll be easier. People will be busy. And one of the things that she thinks that's uh, going to add to is the growth of alternative proteins. So that's exciting. She also thinks that antibiotic use in livestock, which has kind of died out as an issue during the pandemic, will come roaring back soon. Let's hope it does. And let's hope the connection is made between other possible pandemics and antibiotic use in livestock and so many other 
uses uh, of of everything in in the way we raise animals. And uh, maybe maybe that's kind of an offensive term, isn't it? Raise animals. We don't raise them. We confine them in brutality until they grow bigger. That's not raising. It's not what she would call raising a child. Anyway, she also says that convenience is going to be big. Uh, price is going to be big because, you know, the economy has taken a hit. These all seem true. What could be more convenient than plant-based foods? What could be cheaper if you really do it right? Though, you know, it is true that the more convenient, the more expensive, but we'll have to work on that. She points out that consumers have expanded their menus, and then she goes on to all the new quote-unquote cuts of meat uh, that people uh, are enjoying. But speaking of trying new things, she says, alt proteins made tremendous strides under quarantine. The market doesn't yet amount to nearly as much as the headlines would have you believe, still less than 1% of the market at retail. But research into plant-based cultivated and fermented substitutes is moving at warp speed in incubators globally. And consumers see all proteins as another part of the protein market, not in opposition to it. The next 12 months is going to make this reality more apparent across the industry. It's and, not or. Well, I would like to say it's instead of. (laughs) That's my opinion. So all that sounds good. Isn't this great? I'm giving you all this good news. Let's see what's next. Now is the time to lean into agricultural advocacy. This is from beefmagazine.com, the column, the Beef Daily column by Amanda Radke. I'm not sure this is, yeah, this is kind of rising anxieties, I guess. Um, and she is pointing out that that social media is becoming a volatile place to interact with folks. Gee, really, Amanda? But she has all these suggestions for getting the message across about beef in a friendly way. And I just thought this was a good column to cover, not so much because it's an anxiety, but because her ex- her advice is excellent, just change the just change the uh, the type of food. So she points out that all these people are working from home and helping their kids with virtual learning. So what might they need? How about easy to make, kid friendly recipes that they can enjoy at home? Excellent idea. All of this is positive messaging on on social media. I love it. I love it, Amanda. Um, how can we make them feel confident in choosing beef cuts and knowing which recipe works best for the cuts they purchase? How about how can we help them feel confident in choosing plant-based options and knowing which recipe works best for the options they purchase? Um, How about sharing a positive story about beef byproducts? (laughs) It might actually be easier to share a positive story about uh, plant-based agriculture because there actually are some positive stories about plant-based agriculture. One of her suggestions is how cattle improve the landscape. Okay, she's talking that they graze and they aerate the soil with their hooves. This is nonsense. There's so many better things. we. But, you know, I like the attitude, and it's one I think we have to uh, embrace always, is that we need to tell positive stories about, you know, the wonders of mushrooms, not just negative stories about the industry. That's excellent advice. And she concludes by saying, I guess what I'm trying to say, that even in these difficult, uncertain, and downright ugly times we are currently living in, There's absolutely no reason we need to abandon our advocacy efforts. You're right, Amanda. Be a positive light, a friendly voice, a nice distraction, or just a breath of fresh air on social media with your stories, photos, videos, and perspectives. The world will welcome it. You are so right. All right. Here's the really horrifying, unbelievable story. Well, it's not unbelievable. Nothing's unbelievable, is it? The horrifying story out this week. This is from Drovers, which is a meat industry site. 
lawsuit alleges Tyson managers wagered on employee infections. I'm sure you've seen this story. Uh, and and it's just like, it's so disgusting. You kind of can't imagine it. But just listen to this. Tyson president and CEO Dean Banks said he was extremely upset about the allegations against the managers, saying they do not represent the company's values. He said the company has retained the law firm, blah, blah, blah. And uh, if these claims are confirmed, we'll take all measures necessary to root out and remove this disturbing behavior from our company. Doesn't that sound exactly what they say every single time animal abuse is discovered in one of their plants? They are taking the exact same tack, like, oh my gosh, we had no idea. Of course, if this is true, well, we'll, we'll, we'll take immediate action. How many times have we heard that before? So this is a result of a, of a lawsuit brought by the family of one of their workers who died at the Waterloo facility in Iowa, which I think is their biggest, uh, quote unquote, facility. Why am I calling it a facility? Slaughterhouse. And as, as they say about the lawsuit, that their top priority is the health and safety of our workers. Yeah, right. So in addition to this allegation, this one has really caught the attention of the press, that they were actually betting on... Uh, on how many people would get sick. There's other allegations in the lawsuit and um, that the sheriff of the local county visited the plant and reported the working conditions there shook him to the core. Um, One upper level manager at the plant is alleged to have explicitly directed supervisors to ignore symptoms of COVID-19, telling them to show up to work even if they were exhibiting symptoms of the virus and called it a glorified flu. In late March or early April, as you know, things were were really ratcheting up, uh, managers at the Waterloo plant reportedly began avoiding the plant floor. So apparently they did not believe in the virus. They just, they only believed that they shouldn't get it. Tyson paid out a $500 thank you bonus to employees to turn up every scheduled shift for three months. <laughs> the first place, $500? Seriously? Risking your life? But the other point that this article is making is that, of course, that these people don't have any money. Obviously, they work for a slaughterhouse, not a great paying job. So $500 means a lot. So that's encouraging people to come in, even if they're unwell. Unbelievable. Also, um, you know, they lobbied to get uh, protections from lawsuits and they lobbied um, successfully to to get the governor to declare that only the state government, not local governments, had the authority to close businesses. Um, These people are so loathsome, so loathsome. And that's it for this week's Rising Anxieties. Well, that's it for this week's show. If you like the podcast, we're asking for your support as we kick off our end of year fundraising. We're excited to announce that if you contribute between now and December 31st, your donation will be tripled dollar for dollar up to $20,000. That means that with your donation, plus our Barnyard Benefactors and an added boost from an anonymous donor, we're hoping to raise $60,000 total for the year end. That's $20,000 from our Barnyard Benefactors, $20,000 from an anonymous donor, and $20,000 collectively from you. If you're not already part of the flock, we invite you to join for $10 a month or $100 a year. You'll get some really cool perks, including weekly bonus content, access to our private Flock Facebook group, and an invitation to our weekly Friday Flock Zoom meetings for a fun and engaging conversation with me and Marianne and others in the Flock, plus special guests. 
Plus, if you donate $100 or more, I'll send you a personalized video message to show you my undying love and gratitude. So if you appreciate our hen house and if you believe in our mission to effectively mainstream the movement to end the exploitation of animals, if you find community and solace in our shows and our resources, and if you believe in the change-making power of indie media, please make a donation before December 31st and your donation will be tripled. Contributions of any amount are greatly appreciated. To support us today, visit ourhenhouse.org slash donate. That's ourhenhouse.org slash donate. Another great way to support us is to leave us a fabulous review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts. Or like us on Facebook. You could also leave us a review there. Or follow us on Twitter or Instagram at Our Hen House across the board. If you shop on Amazon, you can use Amazon Smile using Our Hen House as your favorite charity. And we do get those uh, disbursements and they help a lot. So thank you for those of you who do. And of course, tell your friends about us. Tell your enemies about us. If you're one of our listeners who already supports us, thank you so much. And thank you to my co-host, Marianne Sullivan, and to the wonderful Jen Riley for her work in producing this podcast, and to composer Michael Herron for the music. Thanks to Podcast Haven for their work editing this podcast, and to our production assistant, Jocelyn Martinez. Thanks to our graphic designer, Lori Johnston from Two Trick Pony. We will be back next week with a brand new show. So don't forget to subscribe in Apple Podcasts or Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. My name is Jasmine Singer. Thank you so much for tuning in and be safe out there. Social distance, stay home, wash your hands and listen to podcasts. <laughs>